0: It is great to be here and to finally get an invitation to speak at Harvest Peoria. It's like every other member of my family got an invitation to minister to your church before they invited me. My wife, Andrea, was here a couple of years ago and spoke at the women's event. My, da- my daughter, Brooke, led worship at the, the youth retreat a few weeks ago, and I guess they did an okay job, and they said, well, if they can do it, maybe you can, can follow in their footsteps. So it is great to be here, and let me just say that I am a certified fanboy of your pastor, okay? Okay. I tried to announce my candidacy this morning for the president of the Tim Harkness fan club, and Jonna told me she holds that position, so I am announcing my candidacy for the vice president. Is, am I the only one in this club, or are there a few f- members of that fan club in here? All right, good. Well, I'm glad to know it is alive and well. Uh, there have been many times in the nine-year journey of planting Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana, where I picked up the phone and called your pastor and said, why didn't you tell me this would be so hard? And number two, what am I supposed to do next? And he always had the answer. He's like the Yoda of all the harvest pastors. I mean, we just come and we don't know what to do. We call Tim. So uh, thanks. Your church has impacted our church and your pastor has impacted my life. Um, a few. Let me ask you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Judges is the seventh book in your Bible, so it's toward the front. Find Judges chapter 6. Um, about a year ago, I got invited to go on a trip to Israel. How many of you have been to Israel? Anybody been to Israel? Oh, man, we got to go. As a matter of fact, I'm planning a trip this next February. If you want to come with us, chase me down on Facebook or something. I'll give you all the details. Let's all go to Israel together. But um, I went on this trip, and... Um, Let me tell you how lame I was. Um, I forgot to bring my Bible. The harvest pastor forgot to bring his Bible. I meant to throw it in my bag at the last minute, but somehow I forgot. And so there we are. We're going to all the different historic sites. When you go to Israel, it is a lesson in history, archaeology, theology, Um, U.S. foreign policy. I mean, it is just layer after layer and layer after layer of knowledge. And so we would go to these ancient sites. We saw the tomb in Golgotha. Our tour guide at the end of a long day told us that the following day we would be going to the springs of Herod. And everybody went, "Mm," and I went, what is that? And I later learned that's where Gideon was when uh, he told the the army that that God was going to reduce the size of their army. I didn't know the story. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up learning all these vacation Bible school stories. And so um, as he was telling this story, he said this. He said, um, and Trent will be leading the devotion for us tomorrow at the Springs of Herod. I'm like, dude, I didn't bring the Bible. I can't do this. And I'm like, I don't even know the story. So I had to borrow another pastor's Bible, and I had to do a crash course on Gideon. And in the process of that... God wrecked me, and what God shared with me, I am now here to share with you, so all of you can leave wrecked after church today, in the matinee service of Harvest. Is that what you call it here? This was what it feels like sort of like a matinee. Do you get like a twenty percent discount off your tithe if you come to this service? I mean, more people should show up. So anyway, we're going to dive into this story, and I want I want to tell you what we're going to look for. Okay, the story of Gideon helps us to identify three different types of individuals that are actually in this room right now. If I do my job right and you do your job right, then in the course of the next 40 minutes or so, you're going to be able to see yourself in the life of Gideon. And we're going to use this uh, this gauge, I call it the dependency gauge, to try to figure out where we're at. Where is the needle pointing? Is it pointing toward inadequacy, God-dependency, Or self-sufficiency now when we are walking with the Lord that needle should be straight up depending on the Lord but the moment that we find Gideon that needle is pointing toward his inadequacy so let's see it here in our Bibles judges chapter 6 let me just kind of give you some background about where we've opened our Bible here I told you this is the seventh book of our Bible This book follows the book of Joshua. Joshua was the high point in the Old Testament. God had promised to give his people a promised land. Through courage and a lot of battles, Joshua had led them into that promised land. They are there now, and they are enjoying this season where all they have to do is obey God, defeat his enemies, and live happily ever after. And following the death of Joshua, the book of Judges says there arose a generation that did not know the Lord, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and as a result of that, they were being harassed by the enemies of God. Gideon was the sixth judge. Now, when we think of a judge, we think of like a Supreme Court judge. It's just kind of a placeholder leader. He wasn't quite... A king, he was just kind of a temporary leader, and we know who the permanent leader was supposed to be. What would that who would that be? That would be Jesus, who was coming in the future. And so this these judges did various levels of good and bad. And when we find Gideon here in chapter six, let me tell you what was going on. Look at verse one. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Skip down to verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Isn't it interesting that God's people so often have to wait until they are brought very low before they cry out for help from the Lord. If you are facing circumstances in your life where it feels like you are surrounded by opposition, where it seems like, I don't know how I'm getting out of this alive, and you feel like you are at a low point, you should be able to identify with the people of Israel. They didn't know how they were going to get out of this alive. As a matter of fact, the the armies of, Israel, the armies of Midia were pressing in around them to the degree that it was a terminal condition. And it was at that point they did the right thing. They cried out for the Lord. If you're facing some of those difficulties and maybe a bad health report, bad relationship, bad financial situation, can I just suggest to you that that is something that could have been allowed or even created by God to bring you to the place where you would do what the Israelites did, cry out to the Lord. And if you will do that, you will find that the Lord will meet you in your moment of need. Now, look down here at verse 10. God is speaking. He says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now, can I just tell you, if God's people got what they deserved, the Bible should have ended in between the white space of verse 10 and verse 11. But because God is a gracious God who pursues disobedient people as an act of his grace, he chases these people down and the story picks up in verse 11. It says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah. Yes, Oprah's mommy found this Bible story and she named her daughter Oprah right there, but she spelled it wrong. She left the H out. Anyway, trivial. Anyway, it says, This land belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, if you're speed reading through your Bible, that would probably be a verse you just kind of blaze right over. But it's actually the key to understanding the mindset of Gideon at the point God found him. He was beating out wheat in the wine press. You're not supposed to beat wheat in a wine press. You're supposed to crush grapes in a wine press. The wine press was inside. You're supposed to beat wheat on the outside. But Gideon is so terrified, he's not going out there to beat some wheat. Like I think I'll bring the wheat inside where it's safe and where I am not seen by these Midianites. Gideon is afraid. Gideon has no courage. He is in his weakest moment. His greatest desire is just to create a little bit of bread to survive another day. And then we pick up the story in verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is is with you. Would you just underline that in the Bible? That that may be the only thing you needed to hear today coming to church. The Lord is with you. He's not far off. He sees you, he knows what's going on in your life. He cares about you. The Lord is with you, Gideon. And then he says this. O oh, mighty man of valor. What? Um, Lord, did you not notice this guy is like hiding like a little girl in the wine press? And you just called him a mighty man of valor. Do you understand the principle? You and I are no more and no less than what God says you are. In spite of your performance, in spite of your history, no matter how bad or good you have been, You are the sum total of what God says you are. It goes on in verse 13, and Gideon begins to argue with God. He says this, Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us. Why why is he using the word if? Did Did God not tell him he was with him? He's arguing with God. I'm like, I'm not quite sure you're with us, God. If you were with us, you know what he said? I ought to be able to see some evidence around it. I know you're saying I should believe that, but if it's true, I should be able to see the evidence of that around me. And the only thing I'm seeing around me is a big army. He says, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Have you ever felt that way? If God is with me, why am I out of money? If God is with me, why do I have brain cancer? If God is with me, Why aren't my children honoring and respecting me as their authority? If God is with us, why am I not making more money? You ever feel that way? It's exactly the way Gideon felt. I don't see it, God. He goes on. Why is all this happening to us? And where are all his wondrous deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So there... Now, if you were God, and by the way, that is not an announcement in church. You are not God. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are not God. Okay? But hypothetically, if you were God, what would you do at this point? If I was God, I think I would have looked for another candidate at this point. (laughs) I mean, this dude is not believing what I'm saying. He is showing no signs of embracing the title, mighty man of valor. And so I think I would have moved on to find a more qualified candidate for the role. That's not what God does. Verse 13. Verse 14. And the, Lord's, and the Lord turned to him. Now, I would have expected that to read, the Lord turned away from him. But the Lord turned to him. Do you know why he did that? It shows the character of our God. That he is a gracious, loving, kind, enabling God that uses people who will embrace their inadequacy so that they are not tempted to get the glory for what God and God alone can do through them. The Lord turned toward him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do Do not I send you... And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. You know what he's saying? I'm a minority. I got no power, I got no money, I got no influence, I got no courage. I can think of a hundred reasons why I am not a mighty man of valor. Lord, If you checked my resume? There is nothing on it that would impress you to say, I am going to be able to do what you say I can do. You ever felt that way? There are some people in this room that maybe, maybe you've just started checking out Church. Maybe you've been in church for a while, but you're cautious because of what happened in the last church, and you don't want to be afraid. And so you're just kind of hanging out, window shopping, church, kicking the tires of church. And you know God is inviting you into the battle. And yet you are staying on the sidelines because you feel way too inadequate to be a part of this church. Maybe you feel way too intimidated to make a public profession of faith, to be baptized, because you don't think you can live up to the high standard that these other Christians live up to. Maybe you're saying, I am way too young to enter the battle. I'm only 13 years old, and when I get older, I, maybe I'll enter the battle then. Some of you are sitting here saying, I am way too old to enter this battle because, I mean, I fought some of those battles in the past, but now God, it's time for God to use some of those young people And there are people on the sidelines refusing to accept what God has said about you. You are a mighty man of valor, not because you are good, but because he is good. And he is with you. And if he is with you, he can call the courage out of the coward that is you. And so let me just invite you into the deep end of the pool here. Some of you are saying, I just I couldn't, I couldn't serve in this church. I mean, I've seen the way those people out in the parking lot get treated. And I mean, I'm not holding one of those things. I might send them in the wrong direction. And what would happen if they go the wrong direction out of church? So you are saying, I, I could never lead a small group. I mean, I just, I just would know what to do with all these crazy people that they would send to my small group. And the Lord would say to you, embrace your inadequacy. O mighty man of valor, step into the battle. God wants to use you. Don't be a spectator. Embrace responsibility, and you will be shocked at the glory that God gets through a life that is actually quite inadequate. I can assure you there is nobody more inadequate in this room than the guy that's talking to you right now. Can I share a little bit about my inadequacy? Okay, so first of all, I am from Oklahoma. That should disqualify me immediately, okay? Not only from Oklahoma, I am from Musco- I was born in Muskogee, Oklahoma. I am an Okie from Muskogee, okay? Merle Haggard wrote a song about me when I was two years old, okay? Top 100 country song of all time. I mean, I was not... I didn't grow up in a Christian family, Parents weren't Christians, never went to school. I started getting invited to church when I was a teenager. And so they told me there were donuts, there were trips to Six Flags, and there were girls. I said, I'm in. Right there, you got me. That's all, it, school, I, mean, I'm, I got a new burden to go to church as a teenager. And so I went, in the midst of all of that, I heard the gospel about how Jesus died on that cross in my place as a substitute for my sin. It rocked my world, and I repented of my sin, placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and when I gave him my life, I gave him everything. Lord, you can have it all. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. And so here I am in Peoria, Illinois, because of that. All right? <laughs> And I didn't get the right education, okay? So I went to school, I went to, to college. I was the first one in my family to go to college. I could barely read when I went to college. And so I studied technology, okay? So I graduated with a technology degree in 1989. Now think about that. I have a degree in 1980s technology. If you happen to have a Tandy computer or need some COBOL programming done, I'm your guy, okay? And then I I, I did make it to seminary, but I started looking at the stack of books they wanted me to read if you got the degree that you're supposed to have as a pastor. You know the degree the pastors are supposed to have? It's the, the Masters of Divinity. Okay, you have to learn these ancient languages, and then they teach you how to actually preach a message. And I, I began to look at the mountain of stuff I would have to do, and I'm like, don't they have like a remedial degree for people that can't read? And it really? it's like, I don't wanna, I, I'm not smart enough to learn all that stuff. And so actually there was a program. It was the Masters of Religion in Education, and that was for the remedial uh, students like me. And so I, I, I took that degree because I thought... Who would ever need to learn Hebrew or Greek or how to preach? I'm never going to need any of that. And so I took the, the easy way out. Interestingly, I was talking with Pastor Tim last night. We had dinner together. By the way, he looks great. I don't know why he's sitting on the sidelines this morning. I mean, he talks about a little dizziness. I'm like, dude, I'm dizzy most of the time while I'm preaching, so where are you? <laughs> anyway, he is locked and loaded, ready to come get you next week, okay? You better pack a dinner next week because you're going to be here for a while, okay? So I was talking to him last night, and did you know that your pastor has a degree in technology? Yeah, and he's older than me, so I mean, it's worse than my situation, you know? And did you know that he took the shortcut through Bible school, too, and he got the Master's of Religion degree? And did you know that your pastor actually lives on Oklahoma Avenue? I mean, we're we're like twins separated at birth. Who knew, you know? And so, listen, if God can use me, if God can use Gideon, God can use you. Come out of your hiding Embrace your responsibility. Enough with your excuses about why you are not qualified to fight the battle. So that's the first thing that we learn is we've got to embrace our identity. Here's the second thing. We've got to declare our God dependency. Now verse 17 says this. Gideon said to this angel, to God, if, there, he, this is, that's Gideon's favorite word, if. If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign. Gideon loved signs. And so, I mean, think about this. He's talking to an angel. And he said, if you could just show me a sign, I would, that, would, that would encourage me. Again, I would look for a different candidate at this point. So sure enough, he fixes him a meal, and the angel brings fire out of a rock and consumes the meal. And Gideon's like, okay, that's that's probably a sign. So in verse 23, the Lord said to him, peace be to you, because he's terrified, do not fear, you shall not die. Then he gives him an assignment in verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull that's seven years old pulled down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. So, verse 27, Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. Woohoo! way to go, Gideon. You finally obeyed. You believed and you obeyed. And so he goes and he cuts down this idol. But I want you to notice what he did while he's doing it. End of verse 27. Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So he obeyed God but he's still taking his security into his own hands and not trusting that he's going to get out of this thing alive, even though back up in verse 23, he said, don't fear, you're not going to die. God is in control of his security. And so he's ticking toward God dependency, but he's not quite there. Finally, it happens down in verse 34. It says the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. Now he's not like hiding. He's like, I'm here. I'm blowing a trumpet. I don't care if I find out, if anybody finds me out. He blows the trumpet and the Abizarites were called out to follow him and he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him and he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali and they too went up to meet him. Do you know that people will follow a leader who embraces his inadequacy and declares his God dependency? People are looking for a leader like that to follow. And the opposite is true. People will stop following a leader who loses the sense of his inadequacy and his God dependency. I don't know where the Lord would find you here today. Um, your church has grown rapidly. You do have a fantastic pastor and elder team and staff. But do you know that you are actually in more danger of losing the spirit of the Lord in the favor of the Lord now than you've ever been as a church? And the reason is things are going so great. I mean, look at this beautiful building. How many of you remember sitting in those nasty seats down at the NBC Suites? Yeah, remember that? And you had to set them up and tear them down. It was so hard to find a parking spot. I mean, we went through the same thing. We started in an elementary school gymnasium and setting up and tearing down. And do you know what? There was a sense where there was just some built-in dependency upon the Spirit of the Lord because you had nothing else to depend upon. And so Gideon embraces this God dependency, and the Spirit of the Lord clothes him to fill in all of the gaps. And finally, we get down to verse 36, and unfortunately, Gideon needs another sign. In verse 36, Gideon said to God, If, there's his word, if you will save Israel by my hand, did he say he was going to save him by his hand, or did he not? He said he would. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand. So he he prays a prayer. Lord, let the fleece be wet and let the ground be dry. Sure enough he wakes up the next morning, exactly what it says in verse 38. It was so and when he arose the next morning and squeezed out the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a hole Bowl of water. It's like, wow, miracle. God answered his prayer. Would that be enough for you? It wasn't enough for Gideon. He's like, God, if you let me let me ask you to do like one more thing. Look at verse 39. Then Gideon said, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me just this once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on the, all the ground. Let there be dew. So God, flip it around this time just so I can make sure it was you. Let the fleece be wet, or let the fleece be dry, and let the ground be wet. So sure enough, God, in His grace, tolerating Gideon, He does it. Verse 40, and God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, there was dew. Now, a lot of people have kind of used this story about the fleece as like a way to like figure out whether or not God wants you to do something or not. Can I just... Remind you in the story, Gideon didn't use the the fleece because he was so strong in faith. He used the fleece because he was so much of a doubter of who God was. Okay, and so the laying out the throwing out your fleece sweatshirt and finding out if is it going to be wet or dry. That's not a great method for discerning the will of God for you. As a matter of fact, God's given us much better methods. You actually hold in your Bible the will of God. And the ways of God, the self-disclosure of God, the way that he works and operates with people, you've actually got a written book, an advantage that Gideon didn't have. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of you, not just clothing you on the outside of you. So you've got that advantage. You've got pastors and parents and friends that know you best and people that love you, that can knock you in the head until you're making a wrong decision in love to get you moving in the right direction. And I've told people this in my church that uh, you don't even need to pray about something God's already told you to do. Did God already tell him to do it? Then you don't need to test God. If God's already told you to do it, then don't pray about it. Some of you are saying, well, I'm praying about being baptized. Don't pray about that. Are you a follower of Christ? Then obey. I'm I'm praying about serving in the church. What? You're praying about that? Like, I'm praying about forgiving my mother-in-law. You don't pray about that. You just forgive your mother-in-law, okay? Okay. As a matter of fact, the more faith that it requires, the more certain you can be that it's God's will for you to do that. Okay, If God has commanded it, if God has required it, if it will cause you to trust God for strength that you don't have, if it reflects the character of Christ, if it will glorify God, if it will save others or serve others, then just assume God wants you to do it and then pray about not doing it. How about that? Just flip it around. Just do everything that you would assume would take faith and then pray about not doing that. That's a different way to figure out the will of God, right? So Gideon declares his God dependency. But then we move into chapter 7 and we find that Gideon is facing an incredible temptation. And the lesson for us is this. Beware of self-sufficiency. Beware of self-sufficiency. We open up chapter 7 it says, Then Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. Well, that's where I was that day, and I was getting uh, to tell these people the stories of Gideon. I stood there at this spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Mora in the valley. I saw all that. Verse 2, The Lord said to Gideon, uh, These people with you, are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Something a general has never said. Um, I'm looking for as many people to join my army as I can. And God says, yeah, I do things a little different. You've got too many people to win the battle. And so he reduces the size of his army. And he tells us why. At the, end, at the end of verse 2, it says, Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Do You see the self-sufficiency? God's trying to protect them from taking glory that doesn't belong to them. So in verse 3, it says, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling... Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And so the first reduction strategy was this. I'm looking for volunteers. I'm looking for anybody afraid. Anybody afraid to die? Anybody trembling? Anybody want to volunteer to go home? Wrap yourself in a blanket and crawl under the bed. Anybody? Anybody? 22,000 people raised their hands like, that's me. I'm out. And so they dismissed them. It left 10,000. And Gideon's probably trembling in his boots like, we've only got 10,000 people. How are we going to go out to war against these Midianites? Guy's not finished. Story continues. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water. I will test them there for you and anyone whom I say to you this one shall go with you shall go with you and anyone whom I say shall not go with you shall not go so he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps you shall set by himself likewise everyone who kneels down to drink you get the picture? He's like, everybody that's so thirsty that goes down there and gets on his hands and his knees and starts licking the water like a dog or like some of your children do on a bad day, and they're licking up the water, that's, those guys are going to be dismissed too. And see, the other guys, it tells us about in the next verse, verse 6, the number of people... The number of people who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So some of these guys lapped the water like a dog, and some of the guys cupped their hands and brought the water up to their mouths. Now, I've heard this taught before by other preachers that say, well, you see, the guys that cupped their water, they were far superior warriors and soldiers because, see, they didn't take their eyes off the enemy while they were bringing the water to their hands. And so these guys were the brave ones. These guys were the superior warriors. And all those other guys were a bunch of self-indulgent guys that were just concerned about their own well-being. Is that how God chose the 300? if it is it's a complete reversal of the way that god chose gideon god didn't choose gideon because he was a superior warrior he chose gideon because he was the least and so i don't think god chose these guys because they were superior in any way i just think it was random god said yeah let's take the guys that cup the water they'll do fine I don't need superior warriors. I don't even need these 300. I don't even need Gideon. As a matter of fact, we're going to find out later, these 300 didn't even even have to fight. Beware of self-sufficiency, lest we think the battle is dependent upon us. So the story continues. These guys go into battle. Look down here at verse 16. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars. I love it. I would have put gunpowder in the jars. anybody with me? Empty jars. It's a picture of Gideon. You're an em- you, There's nothing in you that's got any power to do anything. And interestingly, he told them. Put the torches inside the jars. Torches, fire, flame. It's always a picture of the Spirit of God. The only thing that has power in this story is God. And so he takes trumpets, jars, and torches inside the jars. Verse 18, Gideon speaking, When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout... For the Lord and for Gideon. Wait a minute. For who? This battle is for the Lord. But Gideon tells those 300, you're not just doing this for the Lord. I I want some glory out of this too. And so when we engage in the battle... I want you to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, we're not denying the Lord has a little bit to do with this here, but we all really know that none of us would be here without me. Do you see the danger that Gideon is becoming self sufficient? He's gone from embracing his inadequacy to declaring his dependence on God. Now he's ticking so far over here, he actually thinks he's the reason the battle's going to be won. And so it's exactly what they do. Skip down to verse 20. The three companies blew the trumpets, broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword of the Lord and for Gideon. That never should have been added to the shout. Verse 21 Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, and they cried out, and they fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as all those names of cities I can't pronounce. This is what happened. Before those 300 guys actually got to the army of the Midianites, the Lord caused these guys to start fighting with each other so that they actually picked up their swords and they killed each other before the army of Gideon could actually get there. Once again, to prove, I don't need Gideon, and I don't need these 300 guys that have superior hydration methods. It's all for the Lord. And do you see, down here, in verse 23, the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. I want you to look at your Bible. Do you see the white space between verse 22 and verse 23? You see that right there? That's where this, this story was supposed to end. Do you see what Gideon did in verse 23? All those guys that God sent home, Gideon called them back and began to add to his numbers. The Lord had reduced the size of his army so God could get all the glory. After the battle was won, Gideon added to the size of his his army so Gideon could get glory. The story continues through the rest of chapter um, 8. And what happens is these guys chase them further than God told them to go. He starts attacking people God never told them to attack. If you read the rest of chapter 8, there's no reference, no mention of God or an angel or instruction. Gideon does all of this on his own initiative. Listen, it is dangerous to do less than God said... But it is dangerous to do more than God says. But when you are self-sufficient and you are looking for your own glory, you will find ways to call attention to yourself and make yourself look stronger than you actually are. Finally, we get down to verse 22 in chapter 8. The battle's over. The men have come back home. And it says, The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us. You and your sons and your grandsons also. For you have saved us. Who had saved them? The Lord had saved them. And yet somehow these guys have misdirected their worship away from the Lord to Gideon. And they are deceived into thinking that the man that God put in charge was the man that actually brought their victory. When you put glory on a man for things that only God can do, you're in danger of being entrapped and ensnared by your self-sufficiency. It goes on, verse 23, Gideon responds really well. This is like, this is like a, the best thing Gideon ever said, verse 23. He said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. A plus, Gideon, you got the answer right on the test. That's right, don't rule over these people. You can't rule over these people. You're not supposed to be a king. Remember, you're a judge, and you're just a temporary placeholder. God is the king. And so, don't tell these people to worship you. Don't tell these people to, to, to like follow you. You're supposed to be redirecting them to the Lord. Remember that? Good answer. Thank you, Gideon. We're so glad. And once again, if the story had ended there, it would have been great. But it continues. Verse Whatever he got right in verse 23, he really screwed up in verse 24. The Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you... Give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Wouldn't that be a great way to take the offering next week? Everybody just bring your earrings and fill up the offering bag with earrings. That's what these guys did. They, they collected 40 pounds of gold earrings. Did you know what they did with it? It tells us in verse 27. Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Oprah, And all Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. What's an ephod? An ephod is a royal robe designed to be worn only by the high priest as he went into the Holy of Holies as he became the mediator symbolically between God and man, between holiness and sinfulness, he again was a type of Jesus Christ. We know in the New Testament that he was a temporary placeholder for Jesus who would become the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so this priest wore this royal golden ephod. And Gideon said, I think I would look good in one of those. And he wanted to pretend like he was the priest. Look down at verse 31. And his concubine, which is a whole other tragic story, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Any. Any potential fathers in here? You, you, you guys having a baby? Your wife's having a baby? You're looking for a good baby name? Anybody here looking for a good baby name? Could I just suggest that Abimelech is the greatest baby name of all time? Do you know what Abimelech means? Here's what it means My dad is king. How many of you guys would love to have a son named My dad is king? You just walk up to your buddies and say, hey, I'm Trent. Good to meet you. I'd like to introduce you to my son. My dad is king. I mean, it really would make you look well. It would make you look great, right? So that's what Gideon names his son. Just as a reminder to everybody around, my dad is so arrogant and so self-sufficient, he's pretending to be a king. Do you see the self-sufficiency bleeding out of this guy? The guy that started like a little girl hiding in a cave because he had no might, he was the least of he was, he was he was the weakest and the least of all, and now he is making himself the grandest and the greatest of all. He's pretending to be the priest and he's pretending to be a king. The tragedy is that there is a little Gideon living on the inside of every person here. Deep down in your heart, you really want to play the role of king in your life. You really want to believe you don't need a mediator between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of your heart. And when you are self-sufficient And you pretend to be better than you are, you can actually believe you don't need a king, you are king. And you don't need a priest, you are the priest. And that's what will keep us away from God dependency. We are dependent upon Jesus Christ as our king. We are dependent upon Jesus Christ as our high priest At that on the cross, he, he paid the penalty for sin. He made a way for the holiness of God to be reconciled with the sinfulness of man. And this picture is a tragic story of those who will not embrace their inadequacy, grasp and declare their dependency on God and are self-deceived into thinking that you are totally sufficient in and of yourself to do what only God can do. I want to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. And I want you not to check out right now. I want you to listen to the Spirit of God. Where are you on that dependency gauge? Where is that needle ticking in relation to the way you lived your life this week. Some of you are hiding, making every excuse why you can't serve God. You need to embrace that inadequacy and declare your God dependency. Yes, Lord, I don't have the power. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not old enough. I don't have enough endurance. And yet, God, I am depending on you to do things that I have absolutely no power to do. And for some of you, you remember a time when you were blown away that God would use somebody like you. And yet now you may find yourself, depending on your own strength, your own power, your own resume, past victories, would you in this moment strip yourself of all of your pride, of all of your self-righteousness, all of your self sufficiency and embrace King Jesus as your Lord and commit your life to serve him in humble dependence in this step forward.